I haven't gambled in over 10 years, and every day it's a struggle. And I'm thankful that God keeps it real in my life, because I think if for one minute I thought, yeah, I could play poker here, or I could go to the track, and I could handle it this time, I, I would be in that same mess. Welcome to First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Very glad you could join us for this conversation as we talk with our guest today, Rob Walgate. First Person is designed to give us a chance to hear people's stories for the purpose of seeing how God works in our lives. Just before we get to today's conversation, though, let me point you to our website, which has additional links and information, as well as an archive of our complete program and web extras. You'll find us online at firstpersoninterview.com. There you'll also be able to view the calendar of past and future guests and topics. Again, firstpersoninterview.com. And by the way, you can also reach us with the email address, which you'll find there on the website. Our guest today is a young man who loves the Lord. I first met Rob about four years ago while working with the radio program, The Public Square. He now has a beautiful wife and child, but just a few short years ago, life wasn't all that positive. As a teenager, Rob became addicted to gambling, serious gambling. While he appeared to be a sharp young man who had it all together, he was really dying on the inside, staggering under a load of debt that kept getting worse and worse. You'll hear Rob tell his own story of how God finally got a hold of his life and turned things around. Today, Rob is vice president of the American Policy Roundtable, and a part of that assignment means that he fights the expansion of gambling in this country. Both on a professional and a personal level, Rob is passionate about helping others escape the trap he himself was once caught in. Recently, Rob and I sat down in the APR Cleveland, Ohio studios, and I asked him to tell me when the gambling started in his life. Well, for me, it began at a young age. I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and what we would do is we would play games in the neighborhood, what was deemed as harmless entertainment, nickel, dime, quarter, poker. You know, we would flip quarters. We would play the the popular game in the neighborhood at the time, and my garage or another buddy's garage was AC Ducey. And that was a match-the-pot game. We'd use all our change. And, um, you know, it was something that our parents knew what we were doing and what we were, was going on, even as we got to be a little bit older. And I think if you would ask my mom about it, she would probably tell you that it was her kids and the neighborhood kids, and she knew what was going on. It was better that we were in her basement or her garage doing something rather than being out drinking and smoking and doing drugs, and she knew where we were and what we were doing. So it seemed harmless. It, it, was, it seemed very harmless. And you know what, Wayne? For uh, almost all of the kids that were involved in playing, it was harmless. But for one, it wasn't. Hmm. When did you know that, hey, there's something here that I really like? I, yeah. I like the rush I get or whatever the feeling yeah. is. I've always been a competitive person. Um, I've always been involved in athletics. I've loved to study the games, whether it be basketball, baseball, or football, um, golf. I, I always loved that angle and always loved thinking that you could have that maybe mental or psychological edge over someone. And when I gambled one of the first times when I wagered on um, horses, I saw that come out in me maybe a little bit more than what I had imagined. I saw, you know, the analyzing of the racing form and looking around and trying to outsmart everybody else that was in the paddock area that day or that was in the grandstand. I mean, that's what I did. And how old were you when that happened? I was I was young. I was uh, 18. I was 18 when I made my first trip to the racetrack. And the racetrack that I grew up close to, it was 17 minutes from my house. <laughs> 
you, if I, you had yeah, it figured I knew, out. I knew, I knew how long it was going to take me to get from driveway to the bedding window if I caught all the lights and didn't have to stop that many times at stop signs. It was close to home, and um, I spent I spent a lot of time there. And the one thing about that is the legal side of gambling basically introduced me to the illegal side of gambling. Where'd you get the money? A lot of different places. Being a compulsive gambler, I lied, I stole, I cheated, I did whatever I could to find a way to finance it. I can remember one time saving up and and buying a leather jacket when I was probably 19 or 20 years old. And I remember I had to turn around and sell that jacket to a buddy about a month and a half later to get money so that I could go gamble because that's what I wanted to do. So to I always, raise some cash. Yeah, right? I always had an angle, a way to do it. At one point, I was working for a bookie and um, made a lot of money answering phones in a trailer on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays during football season and Thursday evenings, Monday nights, things like that. So, And I always had a story. I always had a lie. I always told my parents I would be one place. I was somewhere different because at this point, I was still living at home with them. You were living a lie. When did you cross the line from, as you say, legal to illegal? Well, I, I, you know, looking back on it, I crossed the line early. I guess I gambled at an accelerated pace. You know, I went away to college to play basketball my freshman year, and I quit the team before I even really started practice or tryouts. And I had all these excuses and reasons why. I went on to fail out of that school. I moved back home and I failed out of two more colleges. And, you know, I was never one that got bad grades or got in trouble in high school, so that was kind of a shock for most. And what was going on? I mean, wh- why were you failing? Gambling just totally consumed my life. If I wasn't um, in the sports page trying to study angles and what was going on, I was at the racetrack. I was looking for a card game. I was doing whatever I could, and that was consuming my life. I was. It helped me escape reality, and reality was I was entering college. I was having to work hard, and I had a future ahead of me, and I, I just refused to face those things. So I turned to other avenues and outlets, and gambling was the major avenue and outlet that I turned to. Living a life of deception like that, is, is that unusual? Do you see other young people who are susceptible to what you went through? Yeah, unfortunately, I do. The reason why gambling is such a painful and hard addiction to, to, to really – wrap yourself around and understand. One of the reasons is is it's limitless. Limitless, I, I mean that financially limitless. When someone has to hit rock bottom for a gambling addiction, usually they've exhausted every avenue possible of obtaining money. That's through cash advancing credit cards. That's from um, using uh, equity lines of credit, maybe against their home or other f- forms of assets that they have. So so it really can cause you to live that line because no one sees you high. No one sees you drunk. You've kind of buried all the emotion on the inside. How deep in debt did you get? Oh, well, we I tried to calculate it one day. Um between, I would say over a hundred thousand dollars that I wagered away. Wait a minute, how old are you at this point? Well, I I gambled from the time you know I was a teenager. It got really bad from the time I was eighteen to the time I was twenty three. And when I say that amount of money, I'm calculating in. I was taking out student loans at one point to go to college, and I'm paying on student loans to this day from times that I from schools that I failed out of. 
I'm still paying for decisions I made years and years ago. How did you keep it hidden, or did you keep it hidden? Well, there were a lot of ways. Um, I kept it hidden. A lot of people would tell me when they would see me at the track. I was a frequent visitor at the track. And a lot of people would see me there, and they would say, you know, I see you here all the time. And being a gambler, I was uh, the king of manipulation. I was a great liar and, and the, you know, had a lot of deceit in my system. And I would look at them square in the face, and I would say, every time you see me here, you are here. So do I have the problem or do you have the problem? Because for you to see me here, you have to be here. So you t- And I would always have a way of turning it around on other people and making it their problem. They're the reason. Um, you know, I-, I lied to my parents a lot about where I was and where I would be, and they trusted me. You know, I was in my early 20s, so they I had freedom. It's not like, you know, they had a GPS system tracking me. So I had a lot of freedom to do whatever I wanted, and, and I just ran with it. Did family ever confront you? Oh, one time in, um, let's see, it would have been 98 or 99, I share the same name as my father, and I bounced a check for roughly $2,000 in his name, and part of that money was used to <laughs> pay back a gambling debt, but also to finance a purchase of a racehorse I, that I had made, and um, we laugh about it now, but at the time, it was anything but funny, and... Um, that was in 98 or 99, and my parents wanted me then to go get counseling. So I agreed to go get counseling. I grew up in a small town where everybody knows everything that happens. You know, people, the, the motto is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The motto is in my town, what happens in my town, everybody knows about in five minutes. Um, so I didn't go see a counselor that was in town. I went and saw one about 35 minutes away. And I would go see that counselor, and he was not trained in the area of gambling addiction. He was trained in addiction, but he didn't really understand. No one has a grasp of what gamblers think, how they act, their behavior patterns. So my parents went with me the first couple times. Then after that, I would go by myself, and I would just snowball that guy. I mean, I would tell him whatever he wanted to hear whenever he wanted to hear it, and I would lie to him to his face. And what was interesting is on I would go during the day. My parents worked during the day. And I would go during the day. And then on my way home, I would set it up so that I could stop at the racetrack when they had afternoon post times so that I could hit all the horse races. And I would leave the track in just enough time to beat mom and dad home from work. And they would get home from work. And I was supposed to be doing schoolwork and all this other stuff. And they would say, you know, how was the counseling session today? If I had a good day at the track, I had a great day at counseling. And if I had a bad day at the track, I had a bad day at counseling. So um, they confronted me and wanted me to do it. But for someone that's never had the problem – the gambling problem, they they really don't understand. Even in the counseling world, unless they've experienced people who have that type of problem, it's it's really a tough one to get a hold of. We'll hear more from Rob Walgate, including how he found freedom, coming up on today's edition of First Person. Looking ahead to next week, we'll talk with a man who has made dozens of trips to Cuba and loves helping the church there. I just sensed that the the next greatest awakening was going to happen in Cuba, and I sensed God calling me there to come alongside the National Church and bless what God was blessing. That was something I couldn't not do, and that's why I continue to do that and fulfill that calling today. Daryl Wright talks about helping the church in communist Cuba next week on First Person. 
I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for tuning in to First Person today. My guest is Rob Walgate, a one-time gambling addict, even as a teenager. Let's pick up the conversation when I ask Rob if gambling is as innocent and victimless as some say it is. Well, it's not victimless. You know, I was, there's many times that I spent hours in casinos and um, I knew that people were making decisions in those casinos that were going to affect many people. And many times the people they were affecting were young people, whether it be their children or other dependents they needed to take care of. I can remember walking into a casino one time and seeing kids locked in a car. At that point in my life, I thought nothing of it. At the height of your gambling addiction, you're in your early 20s. Early 20s. Any thought of God or Jesus in your life or faith of any kind? I grew up in a family that when the church doors were open, we were inside the church. The church that I grew up in from the time I was, um, my parents still go to the same church to this day is the church they went to the day I was born. And um, when I was a young kid up to the age of 12 or 13, it was about a block away from the house that we lived in. So we were, I was there all the time and I knew what it meant and I knew the right words to say and I knew the way to act. And remember, I was the good kid. I did not drink, smoke, do drugs, any of that. And, so on the uh, surface, everything yeah, looked clean. It, it was. And, and, but remember, gambling then opened the door to alcohol and drugs and all those other things because gambling helped me escape reality, and then alcohol and drugs helped me escape gambling. But my mom was constantly preaching to me, and it absolutely drove me, I would say, insane at times. And I was just rebellious and bitter, and um, you know, I wanted to put God— in a box on the shelf and say, hey, when I need you, will you come spend a little time with me? And I don't need you most of the time when I'm having fun, so stay inside that box. When did the spiritual breakthrough come? Or or did it come once, or did it come, have to come well, several times before it really connected with you? At the end of March in 2000, uh, I had lost roughly $23,000 in a five-day period. It was a very rough time. I was depressed. I just failed out of my third college that I had attended, and... Um, I decided that I was going to check myself into a rehab facility, and I found one on the internet in Baltimore, Maryland. So I was checking myself in, and what had hit me, Wayne, is the fact that that was how I was going to die. I didn't know if I was going to die the following week, the following year, or 50 years from then, but I knew I was going to die a gambler. I knew I was going to die alone because I'd isolated myself from everyone and broke and very miserable because I was not a happy person. At that you were point at the end. I, I was. I mean, I was at the bottom. I, I was at the bottom. And um, my mom had harped on me many times to read the Bible and ask God for help. And my, my dad had done the same. But, you know, kind of as young men in our lives, our moms have that way of— Moms do have that way. Yeah, yeah, they do. So she would always get on me about reading the Bible and, and getting right with the Lord and, and asking God for help. And, you know, I just shut it out. So— one day I told her, I said, Mom, I don't read the Bible or anything. It was written a long time ago. It was originally written in Greek, and, you know, I don't understand the words and blah, 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 blah. And she left my room and left me alone. And I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. I should have thought of that sooner. <laughs> so the next day she showed up with a Bible with every verse broken down, you know, and it talks about it in its original context. And she said, try this. So Not so, so fast. And huh? That was a few months before I had made the decision to go uh, to rehab. And when I had made that decision to go to rehab, I was packing my clothes. It was going to be a roughly four and a half, five hour drive from where I lived. 
And that Bible was still on my TV, and it had dust on it because I had never cracked it since she'd given it to me. And I was packing, and I thought, you know, this sure can't hurt. So I grabbed it, and I put it, I put it in my bag, and I went to um, the rehab facility in Baltimore, Maryland. And when I got there, it was a residential place. There was three other patients. I made the fourth when I got there. It was packed, and all these people were there. And my mom, if you would ask her, she would tell you her prayer was that God would send people to talk to me and people to put in my life. And what was interesting was after I was there one week, two of the people that were there left. Another, well, All three of them really left. Um, and the majority of counselors at the facility all came down and got sick. So there I was on the east side of Baltimore, all alone, away from home, in a facility. Huh. So during that time, when everyone was sick and I had no one to talk to, is when I got out the Bible and I started reading it. And I started asking God for help. And I didn't tell anyone about that. But again, I was like, you know, it, it sure can't hurt. Um, the following week, I had decided that I was done with the rehab facility process. I'd had enough. I was fine. I needed to go home, and I wanted to go home. You proclaimed yourself healed? I did. I did. And everyone there said, you're not ready to go home. Um, they told me not to go. And I said, I don't care what you say. I can run my own life. I had friends I wanted to see. I had um, a girl or two maybe that I wanted to go home and see. And I said, I'm going home. So I left and I went home. And uh, that would have been in the middle of April of 2000. And for a few weeks, um, I'd lived my life and um, ran around. I didn't gamble again, but I did some of the same things that I was doing before, and I wasn't living my life the way I should have been living my life. And I was under very heavy conviction. Were you frightened by that? I was frightened by a lot of things. I was frightened by the fact that maybe I couldn't do this on my own. I was frightened that maybe I did need some help. You know, I'd been an independent person my whole life, and I got myself into this mess. And I figured, I've got myself into this mess. Let me get myself out of this mess. I can do it alone. I went to church on Sunday, April 30th, 2000. And I went to church mainly, as always, because I lived under my parents' roof. And the rule was, when I lived there, I go to church on Sunday morning. I didn't like the rule. And my dad told me, that's fine. There's an easy way to fix the rule, move out of my house. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to church, and a young man was there named Cameron Mills. He was a former basketball player at the University of Kentucky. And he gave his testimony and shared that morning and preached. He has a ministry. And the first thing I did when I saw Cameron Mills was I looked at his hands because I wanted to see the rings. I knew he was on two national championship teams at the University of Kentucky. I'd gambled on the games. For crying out loud, I knew what was going on. He didn't have any rings on that day. And I thought, wow, that's kind of weird. And in his sermon that morning, he talked about the rings. And he said, you know, a lot of places I go, people ask me, where are your rings? And he said, I think I know what drawer they're in in my house. But as the Lord tells us, those are material possessions that cannot collect dust, and they will not get me through the gates of heaven. The only thing that will get me through the gates of heaven are the blood of Jesus Christ and confessing my sins to him and saying that he is Lord. And at that moment, I knew what I had to do, and it couldn't be a game anymore. It had to be – I had to give my life and all of it. I couldn't put God in a box on the shelf – I couldn't ask for help when Rob needed help. I had to live my life, and it's still a struggle to this day 
to live it the way I should every day. But I knew that's what I had to do. And when I went forward that Sunday morning, I'd think about my parents and all the people in that church that had prayed for me for so long. Because it was something that I don't think anyone expected. If you would ask anyone in that town from the time I was 16, 17 years old, no one would have ever dreamed that I would have found the trouble that I found or lived the nightmare of the life that I lived. Um, but I thank God that I did live that way because had I not experienced those hardships, had I not lived that difficult lifestyle, I may have coasted by and thought I could do it all on my own and I would never have needed him. And I think that's what scares me more than anything. Mm-hmm. Rob, as you look back now and all that pain and that, uh, that rescue on the part of God of your life, are you grateful for what you went through? I thank God for it. You know, some people ask about it all the time. They, they, I haven't gambled since in, in over 10 years, and people ask all the time, is it a struggle? Every day it's a struggle. Do I live my life perfectly now? No, I don't live my life perfectly. I fall short, just like everybody else falls short, and I try not to make those same mistakes again. But um, I'm thankful I went through those hardships, and I'm thankful that God keeps it real in my life because I think if for one minute I thought, yeah, I could play poker here, or I could go to the track, and I could handle it this time, I, I would be in that same mess. I'm blessed with an amazing family, a wife, a child that I hold dearly and um, that love me unconditionally, a, a, a brother and, you know, my parents. There's so many people and friends that have been involved that you're not about to put that at risk. No, <laughs> no, I'm not. Or your own soul. Or, or my own soul. You know, God has, um, he's blessed me in so many ways. And again, I know I fall short. I know I do things that I'm not supposed to. But, you know, when it comes to that, I just want to make sure whenever I get tempted and think about it, I do a lot of praying. I do do a lot of praying regarding that. But when I get tempted and think about it, I think about some of the lowest lows you know, I think, I mean, I skipped family members' funerals. I skipped holidays. There's so many things that I missed out on because an addiction controlled my life. And um, whenever I get tempted, I think of those things because I never want to have that feeling on the inside again. Rob Walgate, our guest today here on First Person. Even I didn't know everything we heard from Rob today and how grateful I am to have friends like Rob who are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe. Stories like Rob's are why we have this radio program. If you'd like to know more about Rob, his testimony, and his work at the American Policy Roundtable, please visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. One thing which you'll find there online is another part of the conversation with Rob, which we didn't have time to include on today's broadcast. You can listen to it, though, at firstpersoninterview.com. Once again, that's firstpersoninterview.com. First Person is a weekly conversation, but you can visit us online anytime or follow us via Facebook or Twitter. Those links are also found on our webpage, firstpersoninterview.com. And if you have a suggestion for a guest to join us on First Person, please contact us online at firstpersoninterview.com. 
Next week, we'll talk with a Canadian friend of mine, Daryl Wright, who has guided me and others around Cuba a couple of times. Daryl is committed to growing the church in communist Cuba. It's an exciting story, one we don't know much about, and he'll tell it next week. I hope you'll join us then. With thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next time for First Person. First Person.